traffic jams, tailgating, pileups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Ora Ogumbi. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. When America's Supreme Court gave states the right to ban abortions, critics worried that some women's reproductive rights would be more adversely affected than others. Based on our data, they were right. And to gain a deeper insight into the lives of Iranian women and their fight for gender equality, our correspondent recommends some books to get you started. But first. The UK has had a carousel of leaders in recent years. It is clearly now the will of the Parliamentary Conservative Party that there should be a new leader of that party and therefore a new Prime Minister. Given the situation, I cannot deliver the mandate on which I was elected by the Conservative Party. I've just been to Buckingham Palace and accepted His Majesty the King's invitation to form a government in his name. And amid all the comings and goings, one man had a front row seat. We now come to the leader of the opposition, Keir Starmer. Sir Keir Starmer, leader of the opposition Labour Party. With a healthy lead in most public opinion polls, he'll be hoping his relative popularity lasts. The country is expecting a general election sometime next year, and he wants to be its next prime minister. But first, he has to set out his policy store to tackle a growing pile of structural issues facing the country. Hi. Hello, Matthew. Matthew Keir, nice to see you. How are you? And he sat down for an exclusive interview with The Economist, to do just that. Oh, well, thank you for sitting down. Not at all. Um, You're recording this for your po- yes. extracts on podcasts. Yes, so. so Keir Starmer was a lawyer. He was formerly head of the Crown Prosecution Service, Britain's public prosecutor. He became head of the Labour Party in 2020 after it had suffered its worst election defeat since 1935 and had effectively been taken over by the far left of the party. Matthew Holhouse is The Economist's British political correspondent. His first three years have been dominated by the task of reforming his party and critiquing the Tories, which has given him this big poll lead. But there have remained pretty big questions about what he actually plans to do if he enters Downing Street. He is still strangely undefined. Polls suggest voters feel neither particularly warm nor particularly hostile to him, but they don't know what he stands for. And and to critics on both the Labour left and on the Conservative benches, he's an empty vessel who has shifted through slogans and policies without really articulating real vision. 
And so as Labour moves towards putting together its manifesto, we wanted to talk to him to really understand the ideology, the substance, and really what the principal elements of his programme for government would be. And it's increasingly clear to me that that critique of him as an empty vessel is starting to look somewhat out of date. Okay, let's talk a bit more about that. When you spoke to him, did you get a sense that there is a substantive, cohesive ideology there? Yes, so we put this to him directly. We asked him to define what is Starmerism. Building a better and changed Britain. And Starmerism is as much about the how as the what. And what I say to businesses the whole time to try and describe this is that if we have the privilege of being elected into government saying we're going to carry out five missions, then we have the legitimacy to make those the central focus of um, the term of a Labour government. But then we face the question of how you're going to deliver them. And um, I'm clear that there are three possible ways. One is to suck everything up to central government um, and nationalise companies and run it from Westminster and Whitehall. We're not going to do that. The other is to say, well, we've won the election, we've set out the missions, we'll let the market do that because the market knows best. Um, We're not going to do that. We're going to have a core partnership with business. And these are intense discussions. The big picture is that Starmer really would be part of a trend of centre-left leaders across advanced economies who have sought to revive the idea of active government, of interventionist government, in response to both climate change and the plight of Rust Belt towns. And Matt, can you tell us what he means when he says Starmerism is about the how? The idea is that by focusing government activity on key strategic objectives, very, very well-defined targets, government is able to pull together towards certain goals and bind in its relationship with business, with academia, with charities and so on. And those goals, those missions act as a triage for resolving all government business. It enables Starmer to say that if a policy doesn't serve that mission, it's not a priority and it won't happen. Now, why is that important? Because it is effectively an administrative critique of what's gone wrong with the British government over the past decade. It's not so much that it's become too large or too small, too socialistic or too free market. The essential problem with the British state, according to Starmerism, is that it is simply ineffective. You've mentioned the need to reform the centre of, of, of government. Yeah. What, what does reform of Whitehall need to do to deliver your agenda? Oh, it needs to ensure that we break down the silos. Um, One of the biggest problems in delivery is the siloed approach of the department. Now, I know this firsthand because Mm. I ran a public service for five years. Mm. Um, And one among my frustrations was that you had the silo that is criminal justice, Mm. but affecting the outcomes in criminal justice was health, mental health, schooling, etc. And one of the reasons in the end I moved from sort of delivering in the criminal justice silo was because I could see that we wouldn't bring about the sort of change we needed unless we could um, break that way of working. Mm. And so the missions are intended to be a way of breaking that way of working as well, which will be central to what we need to achieve. So Starmer's critique is partly a structural one about long-standing issues with the fact that the UK state is very, very centralised in Whitehall and yet at the same time internally balkanised. But it also reflects a problem which I would argue has become worse since 2016 of a culture. And that culture is one which is short termist. It is defined by ministerial inattention. There is an increasingly rapid churn of personnel amongst ministers and officials, a rapid change of policies. Starmer argues a culture of cynicism, of a lack of ambition. 
Okay, so we've covered the how, but where will that approach actually be deployed? What are the problem areas that Starmer will be focusing on? So the central what, effectively, if, if not the how, is an embrace of what Janet Yellen, the American Treasury Secretary, has described as modern supply-side economics. Now, the context to this is that if Sakir enters Downing Street, it will in large part be because Britons are tired of a pretty miserable trap of low growth, of high taxes, and poor public services. And that would be the challenge that his government would face of patching up the welfare state without adding to this tax burden, which by 2028 is going to be at the highest level since the Second World War. And so the central objective is not about redistribution. The objective for Starmerism simply is to grow the economy, full stop, by attempting to expand the productive capacity of the economy. And so to raise living standards and crucially to be able to fund public services but not through the traditional supply-side tools of the right, namely tax cuts and deregulation, rather through a social democratic form of supply-side measures. So getting more people into the labour force by fixing healthcare and childcare, through deeper trade relations with the EU, through an activist industrial policy which uses targeted subsidies to encourage new industries, and above all, Starmud stress, by having a, a simply a better investment environment in the UK, by having more stable government. Economic growth is the absolute foundational stone for everything. Before you get to tax and spend, um, the the crucial question is, how are you going to grow the economy? Um, If if we had had the same growth in the last 13 years as we'd had under the last Labour government, we would have tens of billions of pounds to spend on public services without raising a single tax. And we should never lose sight of that statistic. Um, And you know, our low growth has been Achilles heel now for 13 years. So we've got to turn that around. That's why we've made that the central mission. And we've been clear about the sort of growth we want, which is growth everywhere across all regions. I'm well aware that there is a model of growth that says you could, you know, turbocharge even more London and the southeast and then redistribute for the rest of the country. I'm not interested in that model. It's got to be... So one really big supply-side reform that Starmer is looking at is planning. Now, this is partly about enabling the green industrial revolution he wants, so making onshore wind possible, which is very difficult to do in the UK, and speeding up connections to the national grid, which is enormously slow. But it's also critically about housing. Now, liberalising planning law is one thing the government can do overnight, which would make a dent on Britain's poor productivity without spending a penny. How radical are you willing to be to release land, to impose top-down targets, to to take on what's sometimes called nimbyism in terms of people's objection to to more housing? I think we have to take this on. And I think that this government's been walking around it for years. Mm. And as now, um, you know, it's a central weakness of the Prime Minister that he's backed down now in the face of opposition on targets. And for all the you know, fine words, everybody knows what the consequence of that will be, which is less house building. So we have to have the courage to take that on um, and to ensure that we partner with um, builders across the country to get affordable housing um, wherever we can across the country. It will require tough decisions. I mean, if we're going to... This is um, a real third rail of British politics. Tory prime ministers successively have said we've got to get building houses And they fail because their own side rebel because their constituents often simply don't want to see new housing estates in their areas. 
So the question is, can Starmer really do it? On the one hand, this really does appeal to something within the Labour Party's soul, this idea of the party as a nation of builders. But surprise, surprise, swing voters are, studies suggest, less keen because they tend to be homeowners and more sort of protective, perhaps, of their area. So this is politically risky for Starmer, but it is potentially a big prize if he can achieve it. OK, let's take a step back from the policy side a bit. Matt, you met him. You spent some time with him. What kind of person is he? What do you think will be his defining characteristics in this role? So the key thing about Keir Starmer is he doesn't actually love the House of Commons. He doesn't really like the cut and thrust of debate. What he spent a lot of time doing and what he's actually really passionate about is public sector leadership. So he, he places a huge value on having the right people rather than the sorts of reorganisations and rebrandings that politicians often think about when they think about Whitehall reform. I'm told that he rarely goes into organisations with a really firm idea of how organisations should look. He tends to give them six months, see how things pan out, see whether leadership needs to improve before he really starts wanting to restructure things and, and change personnel. He draws in lots of evidence. Somebody described him as being sort of Angela Merkel-like in his rather deliberative style. He's not hugely instinctive. But, you know, this career as something of a bureaucrat has given him certain skills. People say that he has a knack for making an impossibly large number of people think that they all have his ear. OK, and finally, Matt, do you think he's got what it takes to take on the role of Prime Minister? He would certainly be a very interesting form of prime minister and quite different to some that we've had before. His analysis of what the sort of structural administrative deficiencies of the UK state are is pretty compelling and hard to fault. You have a picture of somebody who understands bureaucracies and cares very deeply actually about making machines work. And yet British politics is something of an unforgiving pressure cooker. He will face intense pressure from his own side to start really delivering some significant changes to the performance of the health service in terms of people's living standards. He will face a pretty hostile media. And life in number 10 can seem like crisis management and short-termism simply because it is a blizzard of decision-making. So the big question with the Starmer government is how well can this aspiration for a new model of long-termist government, of sort of strategic patience, survive in that culture? And can Starmer master that culture and able to deliver his agenda? Well, I guess we'll have to wait and see. Matt, thank you for coming on the show. Thank you very much. Traffic jams, tailgating, pile-ups. Ugh, the joys of driving. How could it get worse? The federal government wants to have a say in what you drive. That's right. The Biden administration's EPA is pushing mandates that would ban two out of every three vehicles on the road today. Don't let Washington become your backseat driver. Protect the freedom of driving your way. Visit energycitizens.org. Paid for by the American Petroleum Institute. It's been just over 10 months since America's conservative-leaning Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade, the ruling that in 1973 declared abortion a constitutional right. They did this with a ruling on a different case, Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health Organization. Their decision allowed states to ban abortion. 
Today is a, uh, it's not hyperbole to suggest a very solemn moment. Today, the Supreme Court of the United States expressly took away a constitutional right from the American people. So what has the change meant for those now wanting to end their pregnancies? In the aftermath of the Dobbs ruling, more conservative states almost immediately banned abortion, and more liberal states chose not to impose any new restrictions. Daniela Raz is a data journalist at The Economist. Some new research we have suggests that overall, the number of women in America having an abortion has fallen after Dobbs. Okay, so how big a fall are we talking about here? For a topic that animates a lot of American politics, abortion data is really, really patchy. That means there's no centralized way to collect data. There are a lot of privacy and sensitivity concerns. But recently, a nonprofit group called the Society of Family Planning released some pretty granular data that shows monthly abortion counts by state. This was a pretty big effort on their part. They created a database of every single abortion provider and clinic in America. They asked each of these providers to give them a monthly count of abortions they performed between April 2022, which is a few months before the June Dobbs ruling, and then through December 2022. And a little bit over 80% of all of those providers actually gave them this monthly data. And for the remaining percentage, the Society of Family Planning estimated statistically what those numbers would be. And now because this data includes abortion rates before the Dobbs ruling, we can compare what changed state by state before and after Dobbs. And you can pretty clearly see that in the six months after Dobbs, there were 31,000 fewer abortions than expected in the United States. That's about a 6% fewer abortions than were expected. But overall, that 6% number masks what are really big variations state by state across the country. Really big variations, you said. Tell us a bit more about that. After the Dobbs ruling, some states instated near-complete bans, and in such states where abortions are banned after six weeks or where such bans are working their way through the legal system, abortions actually fell by 63% after Dobbs. This happened even in states that had restrictions around abortion even before Dobbs. So take Texas. In 2021, they implemented a law that banned abortions once a fetal heartbeat could be detected. That's often well before women even know that they're pregnant. And after this law, the monthly abortion counts in Texas fell from around 5,400 to between 2,000 and 3,000 a month. That depends on the source you look at. But after Dobbs, between July and December 2022, Texas logged fewer than 100 abortions over that period. So that's America's second largest state of about 30 million people and they're performing fewer than 100 abortions after Dobbs. And it's not just actual changes in legislation, but also the threat of legislation that seems to affect the number of women getting abortions. In what ways do the threat of these legislations also have an impact? So six of these 22 states tried to put into place abortion bans, but the courts temporarily blocked them. So we see that in some states, as bans on abortion are being challenged in state courts, there's this sort of chilling effect. If you take Indiana, this is a state that's really hostile to abortion. And in August, state legislators passed a near total ban on abortions. That 
ban took effect in mid-September, but only a week after it took effect, a judge blocked it. So effectively, Indiana women lived under this ban formally for about one week. But that sowed enough confusion, created enough worry, and maybe even fear that abortion numbers dropped anyway. So in December 2022, abortion rates were still 40% below what they were per month pre-Dobbs in Indiana. Okay, so those are the more conservative states. Tell us what's going on in the liberal ones. So in more liberal states that had few restrictions before Dobbs, those states still have few restrictions now. And in those states with those permissive laws on abortions, abortions rose by about 12%. And is this because people are now crossing state borders to get abortions? Yeah, basically states that saw the greatest increase often share borders with states that have these new restrictions. So in the Midwest, Minnesota has no restrictions, but its neighbor Wisconsin has a ban even in cases of rape or incest. And we see that Minnesota's abortion rate went up by about 36 percent. In the South, which is generally very hostile to abortion, we see the same trend with Florida and North Carolina. They allowed abortions, and so they saw an increase post-Dobbs. It's important to note that in Florida, that's likely about to change because just this month, Florida lawmakers banned abortion after six weeks of pregnancy. And this implies that a lot of women who've been traveling from other hostile areas in the South to Florida to get abortions will no longer be able to. Daniela, do you think that interstate travel to get an abortion is going to become the new normal? Yeah, I mean, for women who can afford to travel, and in some cases we're talking distances of over 400 miles, this may be the only way that they can get an abortion. The Society for Family Planning's report suggests that slightly over half of women who would have had abortions in these restrictive states before Dobbs had to go somewhere else to get them after Dobbs. And perhaps most chillingly, the rest of them either got an abortion in a way that was not reflected in the Society for Family Planning's data, or they carried pregnancies to term. Interstate travel is also really expensive. Some women need to take time off of work. They need to find childcare if they have other children. And so money really makes a big, big difference in where a woman can end a pregnancy. In their dissent in Dobbs, the Supreme Court's liberal justices warned that letting states choose their own rules would effectively create such a situation where poor women would have an even harder time getting abortions because they'd have to fly or drive quite a distance. And of the 13 states where abortions have fallen by at least 80 percent, seven are among the nation's 10 poorest states. So for the women who can't just hop on a plane or drive hundreds of miles, rose protections really were worth a lot in practice. Daniela, thank you for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Women consistently face discrimination in the Islamic Republic of Iran, but interestingly, in some ways, they're better off than women that live in other conservative Muslim countries. Charlotte Munns is a researcher for The Economist. There's now 20 times the number of women in higher education in Iran than there were before the revolution in 1979, which is when the current regime took power. This means there's some incredible books written by Iranian women to describe their lives. The Pomegranate Lady and Her Sons is a collection of short stories by an Iranian writer called Goli Taragi. She fled to France at the onset of the revolution in 1979. Now she writes from there in French and translates her short stories into English. 
The story is an engaging mix of political commentary and everyday life. Her characters touch on paradoxes of life in exile. They long for their homeland but are relieved to be in the relative safety of a country outside of Iran and enjoy experiencing the comforts that are denied them in Iran. The stories showcase characters coping with and defying the restrictions that are placed on them. There's a dance troupe of young children who, in the evenings, play in the fields outside of Tehran. And then the political commentary comes through when they come back into the city and get caught up in the anti-government protests in the 50s. The second book I read was a memoir called Reading Lolita in Tehran. Bazar Nafisi was a professor of English at the University of Tehran, and when the revolution happened, she was forced out of her position because she refused to wear the hijab. In many ways, universities became a battleground as the government sought to control Iranian society after the revolution. And in response, she set up a small discussion group of various students, and they looked at texts by Jane Austen, F. Scott Fitzgerald, Henry James, and Vladimir Nabokov. And in her account of their conversations and arguments, the various strains of thought that were happening in Iran at the time come to light for a reader. You also see that the students found ways to understand and debate the tensions that were going on outside on the streets of Iran. So for a reader, it offers unique insight into the different political beliefs Iranian women had in the wake of the revolution and also how varied women's lives are in Iran. The next book is called White Torture, which is a series of interviews conducted with women who are being held in Evan Prison in Tehran. It's quite a bold indictment of the brutal tactics that the Islamist regime uses to coerce its prisoners into confessions and to giving information that they are seeking, not necessarily true information. White Torture describes when prisoners are locked in soundproof small cells with no stimulation or human contact or very ad hoc human contact in a manner that creates anxiety and stress. The writer Najez Mohammadi herself underwent white torture while she was in Evan prison and was held on charges of attempting to undermine the Islamic Republic. And the book tells her story, but also the stories of 13 other women that she met while she was imprisoned. And it takes the form of transcribed interviews. Mazia Amiri, one of the women that she interviewed, who's a journalist and activist, recounts beating her head against a wall, hoping that it would dull intrusive thoughts brought on by the torture. But remarkably, despite the conditions that these women are held in, sometimes for years, they continue their resistance against the regime. The last book I read on quite a different note is an anthology of poetry called Sin by a woman called Farag Vargzad. In a country with a deep history of poetry, she is an icon of modern female poetry in Iran. She had a short life. She died at the age of 32 in a car crash, but in that time produced a series of poetry collections that are widely read in Iran and the diaspora abroad. She openly describes the emotional, sexual, and political lives of women in a manner that had no precedent in Persian poetry. In one of her more famous poems, she describes, I have sinned a rapturous sin in a warm, inflamed embrace. Sinned in a pair of vindictive arms, arms violent and ablaze. and ablaze. At the time, her poetry was scandalous for the literary elite of the 1950s. 
And in fact, after the revolution, the regime was concerned about the effect that her poetry might have on Iranian women, and so banned the publication of her poetry. And when her publisher continued to publish the poetry, he was put in prison and his publishing house was burnt to the ground. But nevertheless, her poetry continues to be disseminated broadly on the black market and is also published abroad. To see a full list of Charlotte's book selections, click on the link in the show notes. And to see other reading recommendations by Economist staff on subjects ranging from mixing cocktails to spying, go to the Economist Reads section of our website. all for this episode of The Intelligence. Let us know what you think of the show by dropping us a line at podcasts at economist.com. And if you're not a subscriber to The Economist, you're really missing out. Dive in. Get a free 30-day digital subscription by going to economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns.